don't know. I'm just thinking, like, if Navik, if we had $600 million in some account that got stolen, I would want, like, some alert, like, <laughs> like blaring in my house, waking me up in the middle of the night, like, yeah. exactly when that happens, so I can, you know, try to try to get on it as quickly as possible. Welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And today I'm joined by Anil Dasgupta, CPO and co-founder of First Light Games, Aaron Bush, a co-founder of Navic, you've heard him a few times on the podcast, and Chong On, I'm VP Head of Americas at Mythical Games. Welcome everyone. Good to have you here. Thanks, Maria. Hello. Oh, Anil, I think maybe your microphone it we couldn't hear your hello, your enthusiastic hello. No. I'm sorry, everyone, for these technical problems. <laughs> can you hear me now? Yeah, oh, yeah. there we go. Okay. Yeah, can hear we'll, you now. We'll go old school. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Well, it just represents what this week was. I did all the prep for the podcast on the Sunday. I was ready to relax and settle into my working week, and then Tuesday happened. And everyone decided they wanted to announce something exciting on Tuesday. So instead of playing Elden Ring, uh, I did podcast notes again. So hopefully we're going to be talking about some hot news just happened. Uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday. And so we're going to be briefly talking about Axie Infinity's, well, Sky Mavis' uh, Ronin sidechain um, that was hacked. We're going to keep a very high level because uh, my co-host, Nico, he's going to be doing a deep dive on this and talking about the technicals on the next Crypto Corner episode. So if you're interested in that, definitely tune in to, to that next episode. We're going to be talking about the new PlayStation subscription tiers, uh, briefly celebrating The Witcher 4 announcement because I love The Witcher and so I'm biased and I want to talk about it. And then I have a, a secret topic. If we still have some time, we'll open the secret chest. I'm gamifying this podcast now, <laughs> um, introducing some loot boxes. It was inevitable. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, well, in terms of the the first uh, the first topic about the the hack, very briefly, in case you haven't read what happened, um, actually, before we we talk about that, I just want to do a huge shout out to Sky Mavis and their player base. I hope you're okay. I hope that will be resolved. It's really sad that this happened, and hopefully, everyone will get their funds uh, returned. It's really sad. And so the, the Ronin uh, sidechain is an Ethereum sidechain for Axie Infinity that Sky Mavis is developing to then, I believe, be applied for other games. And 622 million worth of Ethereum and USDC were drained um, using a bridge that connects with, with Ronin, that connects Ronin to the Ethereum mainnet. I think most of the funds are still in the wallet of the hacker, but some of it has been sent to exchanges. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what to say about this. Like maybe someone, I'm, I'm not very in tune with the crypto world. So how big is this hack compared to previous hacks in the history of crypto? Do you know, Chong? Yeah, so from my limited research and just from talking to other colleagues, it, this seems to be uh, unconfirmed, but it seems to be uh, the largest hack that we've seen so far. 
uh, within you know Web3 blockchain, uh, you know up to date. Uh, the, the one previous to this um, was Poly Network, when you know they were also hacked um, in a kind of similar fashion, um, you know by their various uh, smart contracts. A, a hacker exploited some vulnerabilities there. And I think the unaudited amount at the time of the announcement, this was back in 2021, um, like August-ish. Um, I think their hack was around $611 million. So that was also a pretty large hack. Um, but you know, as you just mentioned, Maria, this is uh, the Ronin Network one is, I think now it's like it's something like 624, 600, 622, 624. And so, yeah, it's definitely at the, at the top of the... The leaderboard, the leaderboard that you don't want to be at the top of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you definitely don't want to add that to your resume. Um, one, one other nuance, just to kind of frame up the the sizing of this. I think I, I think this technically is the largest hack um, in fiat terms. But you know, if you go look back in time at some of the the earlier crypto hacks, like Mount Gox in 2014, um, you know, in fiat terms, it was worth like 460 million, I think at the time, but you know, in today's price of Bitcoin that like that, it would be worth $40 billion. Like now Gox is worth like 70% of the transaction volume of Bitcoin occurred. And you can look at, um, like the, the Ethereum DAO, um, hack in 2016, which completely like compromised, uh, I, I forget how much it stole, but you know, that that's also like worth, you know, over $10 billion in like today's you know, value in fiat terms. Um, and those hacks, I would say, were more existential to just the crypto ecosystem at large and shaping up, um, you know, what, you know, what the biggest um, projects and um, blockchains were going to be. So, you know, obviously, like this in today's money terms is bigger than ever before, which shows just the growth of the ecosystem that these hacks are getting bigger. But um, it is less existential to crypto as a whole than some of the other hacks in the past. Although it absolutely, like, it could be existential to some of the stuff that Sky Mavis uh, is building. But we can maybe dig a bit more into that. Did they ever recuperate the funds from that hack? Which one? The uh, one that was done by the, the Bitcoin couple yeah. was uh, that one. They did manage to get back, so some have been. But it is quite difficult um, to do it in general because you have to, well, as you say, all eyes are on the wallet address right now to see where it goes. I don't know if you've seen this, but people leave messages on the wallet address. They're like, please, sir, send 10 E to me so I can feed my family. And then there's people trying to scam the people that are asking for help. I mean, it's just another day in crypto is what a lot of people would say, which is um, not often the best thing. So it, it is pretty wild there. But yeah, to answer your question there, it's start- in previous cases, some of the funds were recovered. For Poly, they weren't. Um, for the, the Bitfinex one, they, they were. Um, I, I, I question whether how much they'll be able to get out of this, because these days there's so many ways to sort of, you know, launder the money, quite frankly, and in other exchanges. Uh, although they do say that a lot a lot of the money's already gone to, like, one of the big exchanges, quite easy to track, which is not maybe the smartest move. So it'll be interesting mm. to see, I think. Um, you know, maybe to move ahead, but I think this in you know, is it a security blow? Aaron asked, is it an existential sort of question or is it more localized? And this time around, it appears to be, you know, what they call social engineering, which means that basically it's an inside job. Now, if that's the case, you know, that is 
more on the company than it is on the core security. So um, I'm into ETH myself. So the Ethereum one, they had to fork Ethereum at, yeah. from the main net and make a different version. That's like how big a, a deal it was. And that's why you have Ethereum Classic and Ethereum now. So you can still actually buy and sell Ethereum Classic if you want to. So that was a huge deal at the time. And, you know, it was a big knock to the confidence of that project, although I think it's recovered quite well. In this case, you know, you have to ask totally different questions because, um, you don't have to get to the technicalities of it, but I mean, if someone in your company stole 600 million from you, I mean, um, uh, just to be fair, I do want to say that Jiho, he was at an event and he um, basically stood up on stage in front of everyone and, 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 and went through it and said it all. And wow, respect to anyone that has to yeah. do that. I mean, he really looks, you, you can imagine what he looked like, right? I mean, what must he be feeling at that point in time? I, I'm in Web3 myself. I have to say myself and my CTO, we were, talking about it and it's just terrifying isn't it that something like that could happen imagine if your company had worked hard managed to raise those kind of funds and it's gone now luckily it hasn't really affected stock prices or, or the, the, the token price uh, because they had so much in their reserve but still i mean mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing yeah um, i can't i can't imagine it i think maybe it's paying off how transparent Sky Mavis has been so far in terms of the communications, even when they were talking about the price of SLP tanking, they're always very open about why that's happening and what they're going to do to improve it. Um, I'm not too into this, so I'm speaking from just what I see from very afar. I, what I've seen from the community, it's a message of support to Sky Mavis and not being toxic and saying that they're leaving and going into another game is that is that correct standpoint it is but i think from the crypto community in general it's less so because i think the issue here is that they did a massive raise of the success of axie and they what is ronin ronin is their own blockchain that they've built to optimize transaction fees and you know build a platform into the company now of that 300 million if you've only got nine nodes to represent the security. So, you know, the idea of uh, any sort of blockchain is that you have to compromise over half of the nodes in existence at the right, at the same time in order to hack it. So with Bitcoin miners, if there's like 200,000 Bitcoin miners or nodes in the world, then, you know, it's almost impossible to hack. It is, it is impossible to hack that many PCs or that many, uh, you know, nodes. If you've only got nine, five mm. is maybe not that difficult, especially when someone has access to four of them, which is what happened here. So. I think the crypto community as a whole is more like, you know, that's pretty poor with that amount of money that not enough was done on the security side when you have that much, you know, like, for example, if it was just like a, a startup that it had unimaginable success and it happened in the first week or two. So I don't know if you remember like Fall Guys, uh, how during the first month of that game, there was like a lot of exploits going on in the game. And it's kind of like how they were just completely unprepared. It, I think it was un, unfair to expect them. They probably thought they might get like a couple of hundred thousand downloads and they ended up getting like, I don't know, 20 million or something redonkulous like that. So when that sort of thing happens, I think you can be a lot more forgiving when things go wrong. But in this case, you know, if you are basically the world's number one crypto gaming company and that security exploit happens, um, I think you do have to ask questions. That's certainly what the crypto community are doing. Um, me, I don't want to be too judgmental. As I say, <laughs> me and Matt, who's our CTO, we're terrified. I mean, mm. we've definitely put on our, our Christmas list this year, amazing cybersecurity <laughs> yeah. dudes or do this to hire for the company. I think that's the takeaway here. But um, 
yeah, I think from a technology point, well, because it's not the technology, that's the issue, right? It, it, it clearly leads someone inside compromised security and you have to ask questions as to how that was allowed to happen. Yeah, I think it's kind of critical as the story develops to kind of like remind ourselves that, you know, blockchain is not synonymous with security, right? You still have to, and it's extremely important to audit, you know, your own security, your own technologies, your own applications and your smart contracts. It's it's a critical piece of, you know, any platform, you know, technology stack. Um, so I think it's really critical. And, you know, if you if you go into like the details of how this hacker found the exploits, I do kind of agree with Anil on that. Uh, it probably was some level of an inside job or there was at least some level of like knowledge transfer that was happening just because of how targeted this thing was. Um, I think it's really critical for any, you know, studio that's trying to come into the Web3 space to really look at that. Um, and on the node side, yeah, it's really interesting, too, because it, it's a trade off, right? Um, you know, the more nodes you have, I mean, because ultimately, what is it that you're trying to do? You're trying to figure out uh, how do you optimize for performance and transactions? You know, how many nodes you really need for that? You need to balance that against security and things of that nature. And so I can see why they selected nine, right? I think others in the ecosystem, if you actually go and take a look at some of the other platform players out there with, you know, looking at the number of validator nodes that they have, it would be, it's quite surprising. It's not, you know, the 200,000, you know, 500,000. It's much, much less than that. And so I think this particular, you know, incident is now going to put just about every single company on notice, right? They're going to have to go mm -hmm. back and double down on looking at their security, their architecture, their infrastructure. Um, and I think it's going to be critical to really sort that out. And, you know, in this instance, I get it. We're, all, we're, in, we're in a startup space you know, velocity and building that flywheel is critical to trying to prove out your business model. But it's slightly changed here, right? Because there's real world, you know, you know, uh, you know, asset and fiat implication. And so taking your time to really make sure you understand and also create security, which then creates trust, you know, and so on and so forth. I think it's super critical. And I think it's going to be a watershed moment for people in Web3 to really like, you know, like get this dialed in. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to change recruitment a little bit as well for Web3 companies. At least when I worked in fintech, I had a very deep dive into who I am, what's my past, have I done anything shady, and just showing my entire life before I got accepted through the security check. So I don't know if we might see this going forward as well with people working in um, these kinds of tech. I don't know in terms of game dev companies whether they will need to hire a, a, a cybersecurity expert or if that's just when four companies developing blockchain. Um, I, I don't know if someone could explain this to me because I'm not sure. And there is that you probably do have to, and that is probably the likely change is that they're going to become very desirable and they're already probably ridiculous salaries are going to go up even more. But, you know, who do you want to, you know, do your business with as a customer, the games company that does have a, a really good cybersecurity expert or the one that doesn't? Mm -hmm. I suppose if you're with the right blockchain, it might get around it. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing that we've learned is that crypto is an emerging space. There's certainly a lot of potential for it, but it's, it's unregulated for a reason. Things like this can happen. And I, in a personal space, luckily not in the company, but have been compromised before and had... Um, crypto stolen from me and i can tell you like when you look at the wallet address that's got your money in it and you're just looking at it and there's nothing you can do that feeling is so bad i mean 
you know, if that was a bank, you just call your bank and say, I didn't authorize this transaction, you'll probably get it back in a second. Instead, it's just mm-hmm. they're taunting you forever. You can be sent, see it sent from wallet to wallet to wallet. And, you know, maybe in this case, luckily, you know, they may be able to ban it from exchanges by, by you know, doing crypto forensics, they call it. So that's something that could be done. But um, yeah, I think to uh, there will be a lot more emphasis placed on security, but perhaps you could argue that is a good thing because otherwise this was going to happen at some other point. And what if it happened to like, uh, I don't know, well, if there was like a government-based crypto or it had mm. people's pensions funds locked away in it or something like that, and that got compromised. Um, I have heard that now the world's number one profession unofficially is hacker. Um, I think, unfortunately, <laughs> that might grow even more because if people hear that that's sort of things that you can get, I mean, people are going to be more interested in doing it. Yeah, and to your yeah. to your point, Maria, about like you know having to do background checks on people and that kind of thing, um, it sort of is antithetical to a lot of what um, crypto stands for. Where you have a lot of pseudonymous accounts and things like that. Um, you know, ideally, and I forget what company it is that has this. They they've sort of have made like whereas Google's like tagline was like "Don't be evil," you know, they sort of made theirs like "Can't be evil" in the sense that you know like the the technology. And security, like just in the underlying protocols and systems that are built, are robust enough. Where even if you did have a bad actor, they they just wouldn't be able to get away with doing something evil um, and you know breaking the system or stealing money and things like that. And obviously that's easier said than done. But I think um, when you when you kind of look at, I guess just like a big trend right now is the idea of progressive decentralization, where a lot of teams, especially in the games industry, they start out pretty centralized with the idea of like, yeah, as we grow. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll add more of those nodes or, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, to grow the system and increase the number of validators or you know, the amount of staking that's going to protect the network or, you know, whatever the process may be. But I think um, progressive decentralization, it, um, like this is an instance where like, like, you know, maybe that's fine and maybe it's needed um, in a lot of cases, but it should really like this is a reminder that you still really have to force that same level of rigor into those security practices at the beginning so that can't be evil um, is much more the reality than than don't be evil. And so, yeah, I, I sort of expect, you know, like things like events like this kind of catalyze more of that, just that natural rigor across the board. And, you know, there's always going to be like attack vectors. So, you know, hacking is never going to go away. Security issues are never going to go away. But um, I mean, I still think there are, you know, just... Yeah, Nico will get into the, you know, the technical sides of all the lessons to learn, but there are just some bigger lessons to learn, right? Around like the number of nodes that you have, the number of uh, nodes that a single party controls, how that single party controls those nodes and like a single client versus, you know, multiple different clients, um, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I hope teams learn from this <laughs> and even those that pursue progressive decentralization can can learn and improve from the faults of of this one yeah so totally unconfirmed i read this on one single twitter uh tweet if that's how you call the messages i think they're tweets right um and someone has said that the hacker had bought short it went short on the tokens, and so actually the way that they were expecting to make money was hoping that it would tank, like Sky Mavis tokens, they would tank to then get money. I have no idea if this is true. Like I said, I, I'm not in this space. Is that actually something that a person could do in in the Web3 
um, world? Sure. I think there's a lot of, I mean, you could have a lot right. of conspiracies around the ways that you could approach this. Um, like they yeah. could, like, <laughs> I mean, like, like that is one, maybe they, you know, give it all back, but they have some other, you know, financial position on the side that they still benefit in some way. Or we've seen other hacks where, you know, they still, you know, however hundreds of millions or however millions, um, and then they end up giving most of it back, you know, you know, acting like a white hacker, but then they'll, you know, keep 10 million or so for themselves sort of as like the fee for finding the exploit. Um, and so I think, I mean, there, there are a lot of games to play. Obviously, whoever has the, the $600 million sort of has the leverage <laughs> to kind of dictate um, how they play the game, unfortunately. And not to say they won't get caught or anything like that. I have absolutely no idea. But yeah, just to say, sure, like it's a big financial market. They are moving it. It's it's insane that it took six days to realize that the that yeah. the money was stolen. That's kind of the other piece of this. Again, Nico can go into the technical details, but you know, it's the kind of thing that like I don't know. I'm just thinking like if Novik, if we had six hundred million dollars in some account that got stolen, I would want like some alert like <laughs> like blaring in my house, waking me up in the middle of the night, like yeah. exactly when that happened, so I can you know try to try to get on it as quickly as possible. So so yeah, that part. Um, is was a bit crazy too, and I've I've still been a little surprised by you know Ronin was only down like twenty percent, you know AXS was only down five percent, and you know you can say that like yeah I guess like those funds weren't affected, like it's a lot easier to steal some ETH than to steal the entirety of of you know like Axie Infinity, um, and have that you know still be worth something, but um, yeah lots of games to to play financially. Yeah, I think from an outside looking in perspective, it it, it kind of reminds me that the best practices of non-Web3 tech is still not fully in place, perhaps for Web3. You you know, you'd have automated dashboards with automated alerting if something happened in your technology for you to know about. And I don't know if this doesn't exist yet in sidechains and blockchains and wallets. That's my point. I think Aaron put it there perfectly as well. You've got to ask yourself that as a question. Mm -hmm. I mean... Again, it is not like an amateur company now when you've done like a huge Series A. Again, I think if this was like an overnight, like say if this would happen a year ago when the game was blowing up, I think that would be a totally different conversation. And then I think the support would be completely in favour of them. Like they didn't expect such a huge success and how could you have prepared? But it's like when you've had this amount of time, you know, what they have been doing is they've been trying to fix the economy in the game, which is fair enough because that's what all the players are kind of complaining about. But you know, you're literally painted the biggest bullseye in the world on your mm. head when you can literally see the treasury on a, you know, any kind of ether scan and see how much they've got at any kind of coin market type site. So yeah, there's no excuse for them not to have that kind of stuff. It's not that difficult to have an alert to say that like X amount has left your treasury today. You know, you don't need to use Web3 protocol to do that. So that's really interesting. Why the community is, is, is you know, a, a little bit... Um, I wouldn't say angry, but I, yeah, I mean, for example, if you go into like the Reddit groups or Discords and things like that, uh, there's been some less than favorable <laughs> opinions put, put on what's happened, to be honest. Yeah, so I think just to wrap up then the the hack topic, I think, Chong, what, what do you think this hack means for Sky Mavis and Axie Infinity? Yeah, I think Anil and uh, I think Aaron already kind of like, I think, answered the question. I think ultimately, I mean, look, like I think uh, it was a Geo or whoever was on stage at NFTLA. I mean, he kind of said it on stage, right? Like, and I think they said it in their official, you know, blog, you know, website. 
Uh, they're talking about how they're going to continue to build, how they're going to continue to support, you know, their product and their studio, which, you know, is absolutely the right call. Um, they're they're going to learn from this, you know, experience. And it was a very painful and expensive lesson. Um, but I think they'll be better for it. Um, I think all the all the raising that they've done is going to, you know, come in very handy, right? So, you know, to some degree, it's fortuitous that they actually had a war chest of things that they can then, you know, lean on, you know, in the time of, you know, these things, right? Now they're going to probably have to prior, reprioritize a bunch of things. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a lesson that a lot of us in Web3 are going to benefit from. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to affect them um, you know, detrimentally, or I don't think it's catastrophic. Um, it might seem that way right now, but I think, you know, net net, and I'm sure Nico will get into this, but I think net net, they're going to find out that all of this could have been prevented, right? Like they probably took their eye off the ball on certain aspects um, and they're going to get tightened up. And, you know, the, the thing that I'm, the reason I'm a little bit bullish on them is because uh, ultimately Web3 and Web3 products and, you know, dApps, it's really about the community, right? And the fact that the community is still very supportive, um, like Aaron pointed out, the the fact that their token, even though it dropped in value, it actually didn't drop in value as much as I expected it would. would it would, and so you know, there's some you know I think implications there. Although one could probably argue that maybe it, because they froze a bunch of things, maybe that's why. But we'll see that all play out in the coming weeks. But I, I think yeah, they're gonna learn from this. Um, they're hurting now, but I think they'll recover. Yeah, I don't think this is too. Hopefully. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I don't think this is too existential to Axie Infinity, the game. Um, there's a chance that it does have larger implications for Ronin itself as, you know, a platform that others would want to build on over time. I think, you know, probably whether or not, you know, they can get money back <laughs> might have a, a big effect on how people perceive building on Ronin in the, the near future, which still kind of matters when there's lots of competition out there where people can build on lots of different. Um, platforms um but yeah I, I agree with chong i think we've seen pretty strong leadership from the team pretty transparent communication um at this point you know i admire what they're doing it sucks that it happens lessons to learn but i think they're doing a good job in the aftermath as best they can yeah well thanks um thanks for sharing your thoughts that was very insightful um it's good to get a bit more context on on what it means from someone who's not not in that space. And one thing I learned is that there's crypto forensics. That sounds so cool. I don't know if I'm the only one who wants to see a spinoff of CSI doing crypto forensics, but That's I'm, a great I'm idea. there. Please. Yeah. Ah. Okay, I'm gonna kickstart this. Get some funding. Um, no, no, I won't. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll then move to talk about the new PlayStation Plus subscription. And I really thought about this cool intro, so I'm going to say it: Let Spartacus be unleashed. Was that was good, right? It was great, Maria. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, poor poor reactions. Um, I will try to minimize how much I'm describing. So I'm sure a lot of people have read what what the subscription are, what the subscription tiers are. So there's uh, basically what PlayStation Plus is today. That's going to be called Essential. Um, you know, two free games a month and access to multiplayer and a few more things. Then there's going to be um, a PlayStation Plus Extra. A bit of. I think that name could be a bit, little bit prettier. Uh, essentially, it's the same thing as the Essential tier, and then you can play up to 400 PlayStation 4 um, or PlayStation 5 games. I assume it's a mix of them. And you can download these games, and it's 
four, five, about five pounds more than the other tier. And finally, there's a third tier, which is the premium option. It has um, the benefits of the essential and the extra tier that I just described uh, with an additional 340 games that includes uh, PS3 titles via streaming, plus a catalog of streaming and downloading PS2, original PlayStation, and PSP games. Um, yeah, and I think you also get some kind of time-limited trials to test the game before deciding to buy it, and that is $17.99 a month, so the I think if I were to subscribe, it seems like a good tier to to pay every month. Um, depends how how much you like PS3 games, I, I suppose. So, yeah, I think mixed reactions from what I've seen um, in terms of the reporting on it. I think some of the games they're going to release release with are uh, like Death Stranding, God of War, uh, the Spider Man's, Mortal Kombat, Returnal. Um, but they did clarify they're not going to make any upcoming exclusive PlayStation titles available on launch through the subscription. So that is a bit different from how Xbox is operating and in, in the space. Um, Aaron, do you do you have a PlayStation? I do. What do you think of these tiers? Yeah, I mean, what they've done, it makes sense to me. Um, they've made what is PlayStation Plus, the base tier, which is still like a... It's a pretty solid base tier service, but what they've done is, they, you know, PlayStation has a base of over like a hundred million units, um, and they're basically adding tiers to it so that the people who want to be more deeply engaged can, and they can, you know, improve the LTVs on their, you know, their loyal player base um, without completely disrupting their business model, um, which, um, you know, that that's sort of like the kind of the big comparison between PlayStation and Xbox. It's just the, the, the main difference is the day one releases. Um, and I think the fact of the matter is that probably like would break um, PlayStation's business model. Like they would just be giving up quite a bit of upside for them to be able to make that shift, at least in the near term, um, in a way that Microsoft with its, you know, like who has more money than Microsoft, right? Um, you know, they just have much more like capital to be able to support something like Game Pass running at lower margins or at a loss as it scales up over time. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, PlayStation, even if they're not competing exactly with um, Game Pass, it's going to be totally fine. Um, they're still going to dominate this console generation. As long as they continue to put out really amazing games, people are going to be willing to pay for them on top of um, subscriptions. And they can build a really great business out of it they already have one and it'll just continue to improve and so i think that's kind of the bottom line here i think as you look out over a longer period of time um i mean it's pretty clear that playstation is doubling down on like the sole playstation console experience whereas something like um, xbox game pass is really doubling down on the play anywhere on any device experience and i think that you know even though PlayStation, what they're doing is great for them. It'll be fine. They'll continue to dominate this console generation. I can't. I still have the thought in the back of my mind that um, really, like what Xbox is doing, though, like that is more the business model disruption. That ultimately, probably, like it's a better deal, no question, for consumers. Um, and I think that says a lot, especially when it is accessible across all devices. And so I think that you know maybe in the same way that I think I've made this analogy before, just in the same way that like. 
Nintendo has become increasingly niche over time as it's just kind of focused on its own lane as the industry around it has grown. I could see a similar trend like that happening to PlayStation over the next decade or so by continuing to just focus in on PlayStation, whereas something like Microsoft is focusing on kind of like a bigger expanded goal. Um, But, you know, as a PlayStation, I have Game Pass on PC and I will absolutely be subscribing to, you know, one of these tiers probably one of the higher tiers on on playstation as well so there's room for more than one uh winner even though they take you know different tactics and approaches is is this a life of a co-founder you can play enough games to have two subscriptions (laughs) hey i'm just like yeah i'm trying to you know one of the next steps hopefully for novik is like i can't wait to you know add like an expense line for you know people to start you know expensing (laughs) you know certain games and stuff like that that'll be the dream come true once i can you know get to that you know sooner than than later but i wish i had more time to play games but i i will still absolutely be there even if i check in on playstation less than i'd like to well, hopefully that benefit will extend question. to uh, <laughs> podcast hosts. Uh, sorry, Anil, what were you saying? Aaron, your opinion on this. Do you feel that like the, the move they've done here, is it like an offensive move or a defensive move in terms of what it means? Because I agree with you that, that Sony definitely going to win this console generation. But Microsoft are basically, well, but Game Pass is Netflix for games, which is, and if you look at which of those two makes in the long term more money, it's going to be the Netflix model. Um and at some point, if something becomes really popular, you know, I've always thought, how long is it going to be till we see Microsoft Game Pass on the Sony console if there was enough demand for it? So I asked the question is, do you think this is like trying to really make their offering so compelling that you would never even question that? Or is it because they kind of fear what could happen and they're trying to shore up their bases? Um, just a, a, I'd be interested in your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a super offensive move. They're not trying to be as disruptive as like an Xbox is doing. I I also, I mean, it probably is more defensive than it is offensive, although I, they're still doing their own thing in their own way. Um, So I wouldn't say it's incredibly defensive from that lens. They also have, are in a great position of strength right now, so they can kind of set the terms that they want. And it's not to say that they can't eventually, you know, five years from now, kind of shift more into the, into more of a Game Pass model. I don't think they're thinking about doing that right now, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, in my mind, it's just more of like a, more of a classic like innovator's dilemma story uh, where it actually, like if they wanted to compete on the basis of a new business model that is actually kind of disruptive um, in the industry and great for consumers, it would hurt them. So they don't want to do anything that would hurt them. And typically the companies that are the biggest and have are coming from the biggest positions of strength, they're the last ones to kind of cave and be affected by those more innovative business models gaining traction over longer periods of time. So, you know, I think Game Pass probably has a bigger effect on smaller companies than it has on PlayStation right now. But if if their business model truly is on to something and is able to scale over a long period of time, it'll inevitably have some effect on PlayStation in the long run. It'll just take quite a bit of time for that to really be felt, I think. Yeah, if I see this from, I don't know, my personal product manager perspective, I think just looking at the data, the tiers just feel like the the safe and obvious approach to take. You know, I think 72% of the install base subscribes to PlayStation Plus 
and 5% of the player base uh, subscribed to PlayStation Now. So it just felt like a natural move to combine the two and simplify your your product offering without being too risky. Um, I was wondering, Chong, you know, with your with your VP VP background, do you think potentially PlayStation could win the long game by having more stability in their pricing? I assume at some point um, Xbox Game Pass is going to have to start creeping up its subscription price a little bit like Netflix, where I'm just so ingrained to my Netflix, uh, they could increase it three pounds tomorrow and I'd still stay on. Yeah, you've just, just increased the price. Yeah, right. Yeah, just, just increase the price, right? Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's a really good question because, I mean, just to kind of cover off on, I think, what Aaron and Anil was kind of pointing out, um, I wouldn't characterize what Sony's doing as defensive. I think, you know, I think you said it earlier, Aaron, like it's all about, LTV, it's about increasing ARPU. Um, it's more like a retentive tool than anything else, right? Like you already have majority of your player base on Sony, you know, subscribing to, you know, this pass or whatever you want to call it. And so I think they're really just doubling down on how do we keep our users, you know, within our ecosystem, enjoying our content and not, you know, churn out or even explore, you know, let's say something on Xbox, right? So I think part of it, part of it is that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, combining these different things. So there's less uh, merchandising confusion when you actually go into the marketplace. So I think in that sense, they definitely, you know, did what we think is the obvious choice. Um, and I think it all makes sense, right? But what I think is the long-term implication here is, look what Microsoft's been doing. You know, they're actively going out and, you know, acquiring studios um, and, you know, with this, uh, you know, Blizzard acquisition uh, Blizzard Activision acquisition that's in motion, right? That's a mouthful. Um, assuming that passes, you know, legal regulation and it, it allows to pass. I mean, Microsoft is now really beefing up the amount of content that they can provide, which could also be on their pass, right? Which then creates a really interesting value proposition, especially if they continue to do day and date, right? Of like, you know, new releases, which is where I think the key difference is. I don't know that Xbox will do that, you know, into the future, especially when they have all this content that they can make exclusive and they can essentially develop um, a much more live ops feel, which is what Sony is doing right now. You, you know, I think um, their studio head, uh, you know, mentioned something along the lines of like virtuous cycle not being broken. So when I hear that, I'm thinking, you know, their strategy is pretty sound, right? Like if you have the path, you get great content of, you know, old products, you know, relatively new products, so on and so forth. And then you have these tentpole launches with their, you know, amazing exclusive games on their platform. So you have like this continued like drip of engagement all throughout the year, which is Sony's strategy versus Microsoft where it's just like day and date. And it's, it's really about just pushing all that content to you when and when you want it, whenever it's made available. But how is that going to sustain over the long run, you know, with price point, content, and so on and so forth? So when I look at that ecosystem, it feels like Xbox is doing and setting up for the long game. And how is that going to affect Sony into the future? I think that's going to be the question mark. But Sony's not stupid either, right? Like, they understand that, which is why when they went and acquired Bungie, which a lot of people, I think, looked at as a reaction to oh, you know, Microsoft's going doing this, that, and the other. We, we know that's not true, right? Like, you know, things in the M&A space take a long time, you know, for it to occur. It's going to take time for these deals to happen. All the major players are speaking to each other on a regular basis. So I think Sony's aware, and I think their strategy is a lot more 
sound in the long term. It's just the big question mark is how is Microsoft's current moves going to affect the broader you know, landscape as there's a lot more consolidation and how is that going to affect their business model? That like I don't have, it's a big question mark, but um, I think Sony will dominate for at least the short to midterm. But I, I, I think Xbox or Microsoft rather, I think they're setting themselves up for that longer term play and they will become... I think a very, very, you know, a, 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 a challenger for sure, and then maybe we'll see a reversal of fortunes, right? Where <laughs> Microsoft will maybe be the place where, like, hey, all the content's over there now. All the studios that are, you know, breaking records and you know, you know, you know, purchasing of these amazing games. Well, I would be foolish as a consumer of, you know, a lover of games not to go there. I think that's really what they're going for. And then, you know, I think I think Aaron said it earlier about Game Pass just being able to play products whenever you go. They're the ones with the technology to do all that, right? And they've kind of proven it. So I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of really strong pillars on the Microsoft side to potentially, you know, convince fans into the future. But they're just learning from this current console generation, which, yeah, they've, they made some missteps. And I think they're going to really double down the next time around. Yeah, I think I, I can, what well, I picture when reading... Uh, the comparisons between the different subscription models of of these consoles, I almost imagine you know micro, Microsoft and Sony, they're two continents just in this competition with each other, and then you have Nintendo that has their safe little island and no one can penetrate it. It's just very secure, and that's where they're happy and they dominate. Um, and I I think you can see that through the the subscription model of Nintendo where you get access to classics that are a huge nostalgia factor and I think Nintendo players the price the price point also seems very attractive and you can sign up I I just found it so interesting how um, they are targeting I believe their player base with a specific model that that appeals to them what one 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 additional thing I'll throw in here is I think the way that Sony and PlayStation bundled their offering right with like you know having multiplayer as part of like you know their their pass and so on and so forth i think all of that was really smart but i think they have their key markets like lockdown right so you know the the SKUs that they have that you can purchase i think is pretty uh, you know it's similar or the same but if you kind of look at their fine print and i think i, I can't speak for microsoft because i don't know the xbox uh, xbox pass as well but if you look at sony's fine print as it relates to the pass depending on what region you're in right? You get slightly different offerings, right? And so what kind of fragmentation is that also going to create, you know, in the broader landscape? And is Microsoft, uh, you know, going to set up their paths in a way where it's a little bit more, you know, steady state? It's, you know, it's, it's similar no matter where you're at. Those little things are also going to matter, I think, into the future. So um, I think Sony has definitely they got to look at that to some degree so they don't alienate fans from like one region to another, especially for these broader multiplayer type games. And so, yeah, I mean, they might be losing margins in those areas and they should be really cognizant of that because uh, there's a fight coming for sure. And it, it's going to be pretty epic. I do have... Oh, epic. <laughs> yeah. I do have... Yeah. <laughs> I do have one um, thought to to play forward that I'm kind of curious to get your, your thoughts on. Um, so it seems to me like if this uh, consolidation path continues and the consolidation tends to lead itself to exclusives um, and you just have like, you know, a handful of giants with enormous catalogs of exclusives, 
that that is where the like the antitrust regulatory issues will start to be raised and um i feel like like it's inevitable it'll get to that point and really i mean what do i know but it seems like the the two solutions there then become all right either you have less um exclusives that are specific to one subscription service or one platform or you allow the subscription services to be accessible on on all of the platforms um and so i'm curious um i mean it might be something where the companies have less say in it and than they want over time but uh you know if we look forward say like 2025 2026 like what do you think the odds are that xbox game pass is available on on PlayStation and maybe something vice versa too. Ooh, I like this question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, 2025, let's see. So three years from now, I still don't think it's going to happen. N- not within the next three years, right? Because like, and the reason I say this is because some of these exclusives, you know, some of these products, uh, some of these acquisitions of studios and IPs that they're developing. I mean, you know, you know, uh, development timelines are getting longer, they're more expensive, so on and so forth. So maybe we'll get like one or two like interesting exclusive and then we'll see like the market outcomes from yeah. that. So 2025, well, maybe, maybe like probably, when, uh, I don't maybe think... Maybe when PlayStation 6 rolls around, does that change anything? Yeah. yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> that could. I, 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 I could see say, something yeah. like that, right? I could. I, I think it is possible just because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, these corporations are you know, trying to min-max their ROI, right? And, you know, they're looking at their P&Ls, they're trying to get a larger digital footprint. And, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard to, you know, keep, uh, you know, gamers interested, especially if you're then forcing the consumer to then start really having to pick, right? And, you know, have all this upfront, you know, all this additional cost. So I could see some cooperation there. I could also see, though, some type of clause within the way that, you know, games that are quote-unquote exclusive to a particular platform after X amount of time, it just becomes, you know, that that exclusivity clause breaks and now they can then publish on a variety of other... I could see something like that working as well. And so, yeah, I, I think they're going to come up with a variety of different, you know, business models to, yeah, you know, like make sure like they're not under the regulatory crosshairs and also, you know, makes it good for the consumers and so on and so forth. But that's a good question, man. I'm going to have to noodle on that one after this one. <laughs> but sorry, Anil, you were going to say something. Kind of feel maybe PlayStation 6 is still a little bit too soon, but I, I genuinely think within 10 years you will see the option of having Game Pass on the Sony console because I think you can already get the Netflix app on your PS5 and, and you can watch it. So if there's a game split, which is what Netflix themselves are sort of trying to do as well, the demand would be there. And strike a deal in the background that Sony takes X amount of percentage or something like that. I mean, I think that's clearly Microsoft's goal with with Game Pass. That's what they want to do. I think it's a really good offering for that right now. As you say, they're buying up all the content. And at some point in time, as you described, as the consolidation goes crazy, when they have so many games on there, the consumer is going to feel like they're missing out if they can't have it on their PlayStation. So I think it's inevitable that it will happen. And unless that was like my, my prior question to you, and I kind of feel maybe with this often, whilst it was sensible, if they're not going really aggressive, I think that will be the inevitable thing to happen. So why aren't the Sony exclusives available on it at launch? You know, that that would be a real talking point. Then you'd be like, oh, okay, they they're coming here to fight. They're not just here to to stay on their continent and watch what the other continent's <laughs> doing on the other side to come to your analogy. But I, I could definitely be wrong, but I just feel that. Once the offering is good enough and there's so many people subscribe to it, it, it may not be possible. And I also think like the changing demographics of people buying consoles is also 
quite important here. So as someone who sort of grew up with PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2, back then it was very much sort of teenagers or kind of like 18 to 24, cool thing to get a PlayStation 1. Now most people own PlayStations tend to be kind of like 30s plus. Like how many teenagers really buy consoles these days? It's more about their phone. So Sony PlayStation and Xbox to some extent have become more sort of luxury products, like having like, a, it's a much more premium experience. The games are more expensive, the consoles are more expensive, but you play a really great game when you buy that and you invest into that system on your really nice TV that you've got at home. So how sustainable is that? At some point, again, if then Microsoft has a load of content that pulls to everyone, including younger audiences, you might need that to make your console relevant to audiences other than these guys that are getting older and older, like myself and becoming more and more washed up and you know to sort of re restart or give it a refresh you need some of this content so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out um i have noticed a recent that you know microsoft seem to be more friendly towards sony too i've seen sometimes in some of their kind of media and presence like that they're like oh great job sony for doing this thing and sometimes when i see things like that i feel like yeah they're kind of not right now maybe not even in five years but at some point it's like extend the olive branch and say hey you know, I mean, as someone who grew up with games for a very long time, did you ever think you'd see like Sega games on a Nintendo? But that's been real life for like over 10 years now. So stranger things have happened is what I would say there. Yeah, well, wait to call out our age. I know. I, I was <laughs> I was about to say, I have a PlayStation 2 and now I don't want to relive <laughs> that I'm, I'm in my 30s. <laughs> so um, is, does anyone else have thoughts on on this discussion no okay well we'll see what happens in the next few years i personally will love to have xbox game pass on my playstation i will always buy playstation to play final fantasy so if i could just access other games whilst waiting for the exclusives that would be pretty cool so microsoft and sony if you're listening please please give us this christmas present and <laughs> <laughs> so we we only have about 10 minutes left in this episode, so I don't think we're going to discuss uh, the new Witcher um, because we're briefly going to discuss about game engines and I want to take some time to deep dive into that. So what does this mean? Oh, I need, I need to ask Gavin to maybe add a little theme music when we're going to open a secret chest. Uh, I don't know, try to give that, that celebration of the loot box moment. Um, <laughs> I'm really leaning into this. So uh, Miniclip exceeded 4 billion downloads. So the way that I put this in my brain is that the world's population is 7.9 billion people and Miniclip's downloads are about half the world population. Now, I know that, you know, the same people do multiple downloads. So uh, I'm not talking that that population played Miniclip, but I just thought, wow, that is a huge, huge number. Um, I personally grew up playing mini mini clip games. Aaron, did you have mini clip in the United States? 100%. Yep. Great times. What, what were you playing? Oh, man. Um, I remember playing a lot of that tanks game where I don't know if like you <laughs> like you have the it's like you and someone else like going against each other in your different color tanks. And then you like try it starts out you like shoot the little like single ball projectiles to try to hit them. And then if you hit them, you like get money and then you can like level up to like these like missiles and different shots. Um, I remember that I remember like like dirt bike games um, and stuff. You know, you just go through different courses. I don't know. I played so many. That was like probably some of my like 
my formative times of like starting to play games was on on mini clip after school. Yeah, how about you, Chung? Yeah, I mean, I was laughing about the about the tank game because, uh, yeah, I I spent a fair amount of time playing that game. And I remember because <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like a it was like an evolved version of Worms essentially, right? Um, but like, there was just so much. I mean, the accessibility, just like the, the the goofy kind of you know ephemeral nature of those games and how ubiquitous they were during that age of I think when games you know that were on browsers on websites and so on and so forth like they were just at the forefront of that and yeah for some of us that kind of grew up you know I mean I got my first console when I first went to university that's the first time I actually bought myself a console uh, but before then it was always like at a friend's house or whatever but I always had access to a PC right so being able to go online and yeah jump into a game without any you know real cost associated to me was fantastic and you know I've been a fan of them ever since right because they're very good at diversifying games just in general, but they're also very good at finding these evergreen products that just stand the test of time, right? Like, um, like, like look at their eight ball pool kind of product. Like st- it's st- the test of time. I think there was a version of it in the back, back in the days on the mini clip site. So like I played the heck out of that game because I was super <laughs> into uh, billiards at one point, but yeah, I, there's some really good games that they've been able to develop over the years. So I'm not surprised at all that they got to this amazing milestone because um, they're very good at being agile, you know, moving to new platforms, understanding what you know, uh, you know, players like and things like that. So yeah, good memories for sure. How about you, Anil? Install with an eight ball pool. I mean, that was the game, right? I'm not even talking about the new one now where you can kind of, it's got the meta where you can upgrade the cues and the ball and all this. I mean like the old school one, the one yeah. that was pure T- 2D overhead. Like I've got a funny anecdote. I remember I used to do IT for my A-levels and I got detentions a few times because I was maybe not the most best student there has been. <laughs> but for detention, for whatever reason, they left you in the class with a computer. Right. <laughs> April pool. So I, I felt like my detentions were made up of like eight ball pool with like my friends having a great time. It wasn't the worst thing in the world. So as you say, like, you know, back then I did still have like a console, but that was like a great way to goof off whilst being at school. And back then I don't think they had the concept of banning certain websites. So miniclip.com was a fantastic place to go to. And that game was like, the, you know, one of the first sort of social PvP games that you could play. Yeah, and back then this was before anyone understood anything about meta games and things like that. So you just really play pool against one another over and over. But it was great then, and it's still great now. So yeah, I agree exactly what CA says. Like, I mean, that's an amazing. They've done it for so long, right? So long. That must have been back. I mean, I'm getting scared. That might have been early 2000s April, but I've got a feeling it was out then. And now in 2022, people still play that game plus all their other games. They successfully transitioned to mobile. I think they had a few teething problems with that originally, but now they've done it very successfully. All their games are very pick up and play, addictive, they're fun. Um, I think they got acquired by Tencent for something like, was it 110 million or something like that? I mean, that's got to be a bargain now when you look back at that, to have something that's got that good a user base and that consistent. How much they worth now, I, I have no idea, but that's phenomenal numbers for such a, a, a small pickup, I think. So, yeah, I think they deserve a round of applause. They've also done it, I feel, with games that are not particularly predatory or offensive. Yeah. It's just like a lot of their games are just good, clean fun. You know, it's like you, you play it and you might not ever have spent any money, but your retention is like ridiculous. Like, you know, you might have played Able Pool for 10 years and 
I mean, how many downloads has that title alone got? I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if one billion of that four billion. It was. It <laughs> was, was actually. Yeah. It was, yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a great <laughs> guess. I was going to say, I, I think then probably Subway Surfer is probably like the only game that's been downloaded more than that. But I could understand why, because like, you know, Subway Surfer is like another one. It's like a timeless game that you can just play relentlessly. And that's what it is. So yeah, I've got really fun memories of them. And I, I think it's nice that you brought it up. I think it's, it's nice to have good news and to, <laughs> you know, commend someone for doing such a great job for such a long time. Yeah, it's impressive. Uh, my, my games were um, Save the Sheriff. And it was the introduction to the first MMO. I used to play a lot of RuneScape. Oh, I love making bread in RuneScape. That was <laughs> that was really fun. Yeah, and Adil, you, you brought yeah. up some memories too. Sorry, this is sort of a, a tangent, but I guess like I grew up as like more computers were like and like laptops were entering like classrooms and people got their own devices. And I mean, even uh, like earlier school days, like you know, we'd go to the computer lab and you know, you know, just be on random applications. <laughs> and I remember, I remember when like mini clip was like the full rage at school ever, like the laptop, the, the carts with all the laptops would come out and it'd be like, yes, it's game time. Even though like that wasn't the, <laughs> the intention <laughs> at all. And people would just go like straight to mini clip and, and, and play games. And I remember like, this was also the time, of course, where like schools, they, they start trying to ban like websites uh, where like kids would be spending their time playing games and things. And I, I think that like the best thing, and this is a total tangent, but the best website, I totally forget the name. It was in the browser, um, but the screen looked like it was a file folder. And so like it would look like a Word doc, a PowerPoint doc, and every one of those um, icons would link to a to like a different browser game um and um every day they would refresh the the links so that it would like get past whatever was blocked but i remember the very beginning of that it linked to like a ton of mini clip games and then it, you know they had to evolve but yeah this was a a fantastic a fantastic super random era of games but i i love it yeah, and I think hopefully it will continue for many years. At least, you know, if I ever have children, I think the first exposure I'd give them to games is allow them to go on Miniclip. Exactly because they're mostly safe games and I can trust them to just be on it and play whatever they want. Um, so maybe that generation that grew up playing Miniclip, maybe now they'll also pass it on to the next, the next generations that are, that are coming through. Um, Chong, what, what do you think a company needs to have or needs to be in order to achieve this long-term success throughout, you know, potentially decades? Yeah, great question. I, I mean, my POV on Miniclip is that, you know, one, I think the, the angle that you just called out, um, they're very conscious about who their target players are, right? I mean, you know, they have a they have a, a an immense catalog of products, you know, everything from sports, you know, whether it's like, you know, football or, you know, basketball uh, or like American football. Like they have so many different, you know, you know, genres of games, right? And they got like MMO type games and, you know, they got you know, just like ridiculous games that don't make any sense, right? Which is just for fun and creativity. But, you know, underlying all of that is there's a wholesomeness to their product line, right? Which resonates with both adults, you know, you know, and teenagers as well as, you know, children. And I think that's really the strength of how they've been able to grow uh, at the, at the you know, 
no pun intended, at the clip that they've been able to grow at, right? <laughs> and so I think it's really just, you know, strong how they've done that. But also it's really important to, you know, call out um, how robust our tech stack is, to be completely honest. So if you think about, you know, some of these really interesting multiplayer games that they've been able to develop over the years. I remember when um, Agar.io and IO games started coming onto the scene, right? Like nothing exploded. And I all honestly thought in the very beginning, there's no way this is multiplayer, right? This is all like, you know, bots, right? It's just like, you know, pretending to be. But they've kind of understood and figured out the, the, the essential balance between, you know, fun factor first, you know, quick and fast production turnaround time so we can get products to market and validate. Because most of their games, you can't really say that they have the best, you know, let's say graphical fidelity, right? And so from a product perspective, it's really honing in on like the experience, the systems design, you know, the, the, the core loop. And they're really good at doing that, right? And so, you know, over time, as, you know, meta plays and meta loops became a thing, you know, longer term progression, not just bite size, you know, gameplay for, you know, you know, you play for a couple minutes at a time. Well, then they've been able to layer that experience on top and, you know, continue to build more robust and more, you know, interesting products. Right. And now they're in a position because, yeah, four billion downloads, you know, acquisitions, they have a war chest. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they start going out and, you know, trying to build out more complex, more robust products in addition to uh, this, like, lineup of, you know, uh, generalized products that anyone can kind of go after. So I think their their foundation is extremely strong, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. And, you know, now it's all about where do they want to start growing business and, you know, tangential, you know, areas of, you know, the, the development. And, you know, we'll see what they, what they can do from there. But, yeah, it, it's a very, very strong foundation that's very hard to replicate. That's a super interesting take. I hadn't thought about that. Well, strong prediction here. Let's see what Miniclip does in the future. It'd be interesting to see if, if they explore more complex games. When you were um, expressing your thoughts, I just I was thinking... Perhaps did Miniclip inspire this generation of hyper casual games on mobile? I mean, that's a that's a really good point. I mean, you know, I think both, you know, for Aaron and for Neil and even you, Marie, I mean, I, I think we all I think have fond memories, right? Yeah. Of playing on like Miniclip's websites or, you know, now into mobile. But I I personally will say I've been inspired by games that I played when I was younger you know, on a, on a website somewhere, on a browser somewhere, because then it sparked my curiosity, my creativity, which then extrapolated into some other experiences downstream, right? So, yeah, I, I think it has the potential for that, right? Um, I think it's both on the, I guess if we're being, if you're looking at taxonomy of like genres, hyper-casual for sure, I think casual market for sure, um, you know, what I would consider like arcade sports for sure, right? Like, I think they've touched on all of those in a very successful way. And so did those products inspire other products downstream? I, I would probably say yes. Well, congratulations, Miniclip. Um, hopefully we'll see you reach, I don't know, 8 billion downloads to reach the world population. Uh, let's see who <laughs> overtakes who. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for coming to this episode. I know it was the first time we were together as, as this group. So it's nice to always see a new mix of people um, joining as panelists. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. It was fun. Yeah. Good. 
Imagine if you said that you hated it on, live on an episode that then is going live. You had to say yes. So yes, I, <laughs> we were fishing for, for compliments. Um, yeah, if you want to continue this discussion, you can find us on Navix Discord. Uh, we're there. So send us a message. Very happy to, to continue talking about this. And hopefully uh, maybe we'll see discussion on The Witcher, the new Witcher in the next episode. And yeah, thanks for joining and we'll see you next week.